Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Over the next several weeks on the podcast, we'll be airing special encore presentations of the panels that were hosted at our National Law and Freedom Conference in Toronto earlier this year. Today's episode highlights our panel on the Emergencies Act and the so-called Freedom Convoy, featuring professors Ryan Alford and Leah West, lawyers Kara Zwiebel and Asher Honickman, and moderated by Professor Malcolm Lavoie. Please note that this panel was recorded before the Public Order Emergency Commission released its report regarding the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Listen to our recent podcast interview featuring Ryan and Kara for their reaction to the Commission's conclusion that the federal government's invocation of the Act was justified. It's my pleasure to introduce our moderator for this panel. Again, a, a longtime supporter and friend of Runnymede, Professor Malcolm Lavoie, who is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. His research deals with property law, judicial remedies, federalism, and issues of Indigenous land tenure and jurisdiction. Prior to joining the Faculty of Law at U of A, he was a graduate student at Harvard Law School and previously clerked uh, for Justice Franz Slattler of the Alberta Court of Appeal and for uh, Justice Rosalie Abella at the Supreme Court of Canada. His scholarship has been cited by the Supreme Court of Canada and in addition to research and teaching, he is an active member of the Alberta Bar and Council at Miller Thompson's Edmonton office. So without further ado, please give a warm welcome to our panel here to discuss the Emergencies Act. Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the panel you've all been waiting for uh, on the topic of the trucker convoy and the uh, invocation of the Emergencies Act, probably the biggest news story of the previous year uh, and undoubtedly the, the biggest legal news story. Um, Chris has really outdone himself with the panel today, I'll, uh, some, of, some of the leading experts um, on these issues and so I'll, I'll briefly introduce each of them and, and we'll get to our discussion. Um, going in, in, in the order they'll be speaking, uh, we'll, we'll begin with Kara Zweibel, uh, who is uh, director of the Fundamental Freedoms Pro uh, Program with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Uh, her work with the CCLA involves providing legal opinions and research, coordinating uh, litigation and interventions, and representing the CCLA before courts. Um, uh, next up, we'll have uh, Asher Honickman, who's a partner with uh, Jordan Honickman Barristers, where he practices uh, civil, commercial, and public litigation. Um, he's appeared at every level of court in Ontario, as well as the Supreme Court of Canada. He's uh, president of the Advocates for the Rule of Law and uh, has published scholarly articles in legal journals, uh, some of which have been cited by the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, next up, we'll have Professor uh, Leah West, who's an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, she's also uh, counsel with uh, Friedman Mansour. Uh, she was previously counsel with the Department of Justice in the National Security Litigation and Advisory Group and uh, prior to that uh, served in the Canadian Armed Forces for 10 years as an armored officer uh, and was deployed to Afghanistan in, in 2010. Uh, and finally, we'll have uh, Professor Ryan Alford, who's a professor at the Bora Laskin School of Law at Lakehead University. Uh, he's an expert on the rule of law and states of emergency. Uh, sounds relevant. Um, he's the author of the book uh, Permanent State of Emergency and, uh, as well as the book Seven Absolute Rights with uh, numerous other published works. 
uh, Professor Alford uh, was granted standing before the Public Order Emergency Commission uh, where he made submissions on the necessity of amendments uh, to the Emergencies Act. Uh, so we've got a great panel uh, before us and we'll begin uh, without further ado uh, with Kara Zweibel. Thank you very much, and uh, hello everyone, and thank you to, um, to the Running Meat Society and to, to Chris for the invitation today. Um, I'm going to talk, uh, let me just make sure I don't talk for too long. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, a, few, a few aspects related to the uh, invocation of the Emergencies Act, and that's um, the requirement that the Act only be used when, um, when necessary, when, other, when, when no other um, law will do. Um, and also the, some of the federal, provincial sort of issues that arose during the course of the commission. Um, I was fortunate to represent uh, with co-counsel the Canadian Civil Liberties Association before the Public Order Emergency Commission. Um, and one of the things, of course, that the commission will be looking at is whether um, the act was invoked lawfully. Um, the definition of a national emergency under the Emergencies Act is an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians, and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it, um, and that cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. And that is, um, that is the definition of national emergency that applies regardless of the type of emergency that is, um, that is being declared. So there are four different types of emergencies under the Emergencies Act. The, the type that was declared was a public order emergency, and the public order emergency definition requires some other things that I know some of my co-panelists are going to discuss. So I'm going to focus on this question of the, the adequacy of existing laws. And I think that this was something that was addressed at some length over the course of the, the Commission's work. Um, and in, in my view, um, much if not all of the illegal activity that was happening over the course of the um, the convoy, the protests, was was and could, what could have been addressed using either municipal bylaws, uh, provincial highway traffic laws, or the criminal code. Um, and the issue that that I think became very clear in a number of different respects over the course of the commission was that um, this was not about the absence of law to address the situation. It was about uh, the capacity or ability, or some might say willingness, to enforce the existing laws. Um, and, and one thing that I think became also very clear over the course of the commission is that when we're talking about public order events, um, police discretion, how police choose to exercise their discretion is always going to be a very important and significant issue. Uh, and we see this in, in other cases of protests. So even when, uh, you know, um, a developer is developing land and there's um, uh, indigenous land defenders that will um, occupy that land as a form of protest and the developer will go and get an injunction, we still see that ultimately police have to make decisions about whether and how they are going to exercise their powers to enforce uh, those, those orders from the court. Um, there was lots of evidence during the course of the commission that the, the, the politicians that were involved and the civilian oversight body, in particular the Ottawa Police Services Board, which, which oversees the work of the Ottawa Police, um, 
was very concerned about not directing police operations. And this is something that comes out of prior commissions of inquiry, particularly the Ipperwash inquiry, um, that there's, there's this, um, it, there still seems to be a lot of confusion, but that there is su supposedly this distinction between um, policy and operational matters. And, and really what Ipperwash said and what I think, you know, the commission may end up saying is that that is not a very helpful um, distinction and that there is a role for um, elected officials and oversight bodies to play in directing the police but it has to be transparent um, there has to be clear lines of accountability um, what the CCLA said when it when it was involved in the Ipperwash inquiry was that when it comes to a large public order event it's it's not that politicians can't direct the police. It's that when they do so, they have to communicate clearly and they have to do so in writing. Um, and during the course of the commission, the conclusion that I came to was that a lot of, some of the anxiety about directing police um, may have ultimately led to the decision that there was a need to invoke the act because what invoking the act really did was send a very clear public message to the police that government wanted enforcement action taken. They wanted it taken quickly. Um, immediately uh, and in a particular way. Um, so that, that's one issue that I think we'll, we'll see what the Commission has to say. And just to, to wrap up, the, the other issue I think it has to do with the role of provinces and, and the relationship between the provinces and the federal government. Um, again, during the course of the Commission, there was a fair bit of evidence that the uh, provincial government in Ontario was pretty reluctant to, to get involved in what was happening particularly in Ottawa once the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor became blockaded and uh, international trade was being affected. Uh, the Ford government got a little more um, active and interested. But before that, they were um, pretty content to sort of sit things out. And, and this raises the question of whether the Emergencies Act, when it says that something exceeds the capacity or authority of a province, um, you know, what do we do if it, if it doesn't exceed the capacity or authority of a province, but a province is just unwilling to take the steps that would be required to address it? Is that enough? Does that grant the federal government permission uh, to step in? Um, my answer would be no, but, but I hope we'll have an interesting discussion about that. Um, so I'm going to leave it there and um, look forward to your questions. Okay, thank you. Uh, th thank you, Malcolm, for that nice introduction. Uh, very great to be back here. I, it feels like we were here just 10 months ago. Uh, I, I guess we were. So it's, it's nice to be back, and a lot's changed since we were with here glass last time. Exactly, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> nice to be here without glass partitions. So a lot can change in, in 10 months. And uh, we'll be talking, I think, about how quickly things moved with the Emergencies Act and, and why public oversight, and especially oversight in a conference like this, is so important because things happen so quickly in that, in that context, and sometimes you can't get to court in time. Uh, so I, I'd like to talk about uh, one aspect of the invocation of the public order emergency, and that's what constitutes threats to the security of Canada. And, and the reason I want to talk about that is mostly from the perspective uh, of, of being a practitioner myself. Um, so, as was evident in the last panel, um, judges often 
don't want to decide things when you bring something before them. It, people here might be shocked to hear this, but judges in this country are deeply conservative in, in one meaningful way, which is that they don't want to rock the boat. Uh, and there's exceptions, of course, but that's generally true. And if a judge can put something off and say, well, you know, this motion to strike, uh, take it to trial, or this summary judgment motion, take it to trial, uh, usually judges will want to take the path of least resistance. And the reason that's important with the Emergencies Act is that the path of least resistance in general at a future judicial review will be to say, you know what, I'm going to defer to what the government did because there are other avenues to scrutinize the government. There's, there's a mandatory parliamentary vote, there's the commission, there's the fact that this has been in the news. In other words, it's not my job as a judge at a judicial review to scrutinize whether the invocation of this act was justified and because it involves issues of national security, it's really not my job. And so having said that, having laid that general foundation, the, the reason I find this issue of threats to the security of Canada so interesting is that it's sort of an exception to that one, uh, to that overarching rule. It's the one area where, in my view, a judge might be willing to take a closer look. And, and the reason for that is that we know very clearly from the statute what threats to the security of Canada are. So uh, picking up on where Kara left off, a public order emergency, which is one type of national emergency, requires threats to the security of Canada uh, per section 16 of the Act. And then section 16 defines threats to the security of Canada as that term is defined in the CSIS Act. And so then you go to the CSIS Act and the branch of the definition is serious threats to persons or property for the purpose of achieving an ideological, religious, or political objective. Okay, so that, there needs to be that, a, th a serious threat to persons or property for the purpose of achieving an ideological, political, or religious objective in order for the government to demonstrate that there were threats to the security of Canada, therefore it could invoke the Emergencies Act. L leaving aside the two other criteria that that Kara was uh, discussing. So, on the facts, CSIS has said, we would not have considered this to be a threat to the security of Canada as we interpret the CSIS Act, our enabling statute. And so, that is so key because right now we have established facts and we have an established legal standard with a government body that interprets and applies that standard saying this would not be threats to the security of Canada. And so at that point, the government, you know, at the beginning, before CSIS gave that evidence, uh, or before that evidence came out during the commission, we were all wondering, was the government going to put forward evidence to show that there were these threats to the security of Canada? And the government gave no indication that it thought that threats to the security of Canada meant something different from what CSIS uh, says that it means. And then the commission begins and we see the goalposts begin to move because the CSIS director comes out and says, you know, uh, we, CSIS would not have considered this to be threats to the security of Canada, but I still was of the opinion that the prime minister should declare uh, a public order emergency. And so that came out and everyone's sort of scratching their heads saying, well, if, if you don't believe that the standard was met, why were you saying the government should declare a public order emergency? 
Then Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor, comes out and says something really extraordinary. She says, we received a legal opinion that's, that the government is not bound by the CSIS Act definition. And, and that was really extraordinary, and even more so that certain members of the, the legal community came out and, and defended what she said. Because the implication of that would be that every single definition provision in every single statute is effectively meaningless, or at the very least doesn't exhaust the meaning of what it purports to define. That, that would be an extremely radical proposition, and it, it amounts to the government saying we can do whatever we want. We are not bound by the law. Uh, so then that position was out there for a while, and then Attorney uh, General Lametti comes out, Minister of Justice, and says, well, it's not actually that. It's more that we are bound by the same standard, but we can interpret that standard differently from how CSIS interprets it. Uh, I, I, so in my paper, I discuss how that's a more interesting, nuanced argument, but ultimately, I'm of the view that it's wrong. Um, it's, it's wrong based on the Supreme Court's decision in Vavilov, which basically says you look at the text, you look to see, does the legislature intend for there to be different standards? Uh, in my view, the clear answer to that is no. The legislature clearly intended a single stringent standard. And why this is so interesting, again, is because the government has said, effectively, they've admitted that if the CSIS interpretation of the CSIS Act applies, we would not meet threats to the security of Canada. They have not come out and said, look, uh, sure, it's the same standard, but we had different evidence than them. We interpreted the evidence differently from them. They have come out and acknowledged, essentially, that if the, if the standard were the same, there would not be threats to the security of Canada, but there are threats to the security of Canada because we're allowed to interpret the statute differently. And, and again, it, it's, it's so important to have conferences like this, in my view, because when the government says something like that, it's, there's no real ability to scrutinize it other than in the public realm. The government will probably be able to get away with that, and even if it doesn't, it will happen at a judicial review long time down the road, and there probably won't be any consequences. So that's why it's so important to be informed about these issues, I think, so that the next time this happens, and hopefully it won't happen unless there really is a national emergency, but that the next time it happens, that the people are there to say, hang on a second, you have to be able to justify yourself to us, and you haven't done that because you have not met the legal standard that is very clearly in the statute. Thank you. Thanks, Asher. That's great. Um, you guys have spelled out this stuff so I don't have to do it, so I can just get right into things. So following the invocation of the act, um, aside from being probably the first person on TV saying, what the hell, um, <laughs> Professor Michael Nesbitt and I, along with my very brilliant student, Jake Norris, if anyone has the opportunity to hire him, you should, um, wrote a paper for a special edition of the Criminal Law Quarterly, which covered a variety of factors, um, a variety of legal issues, and I commend you all to it. In that paper, we identified that in order to have reached the conclusion that the threshold for a declaration of public order emergency was met, which you've heard enunciated, Cabinet needed to base its decision on a novel, unconventional, and previously unanticipated interpretation of threats to the security of Canada. Primarily, that blockades and economic harm constitute serious violence, 
and therefore violence to economic interests satisfies the requirement for serious violence against persons or property in Section 2C of the CSIS Act. Now, having been a CSIS lawyer, I'm very familiar with how that act is interpreted. Um, alternatively, that violent political and ideological rhetoric used openly by Freedom Convoy participants, so long as it's paired with unlawful activity, is sufficient to satisfy Section 2C. And that the actual destruction of property, property or physical injury or death or particularized threats was not required. According to the final written submissions of the Government of Canada before the Commission, that is exactly what Cabinet's legal position is. On the definition of serious violence, the government's submissions acknowledged that when used in the CSIS Act, this term means violent activity that could or would cause death. Um, but the government then argues that when applying a proposed, I'm quoting, a proposive application of the definition, particularly for the purposes of the EA, the plain meaning of serious violence is broader than activities which cause death. The EA was clearly intended to permit the government to protect Canadians from the harms caused by national emergencies that pose a threat of serious violence short of lethality. Now, there is no support or citation offered for this claim. While it is true that the EA writ large has this purpose, that does not mean that for the specific purpose of declaring a public order emergency on the basis of a Section 2C threat, that the threshold of what constitutes serious violence is lower than the meaning assigned to it in Section 2 of the CSIS Act, because that's exactly what the Act says, that it has the meaning assigned to it in Section 2C of the CSIS Act. So what are the serious acts of violence relied upon to justify Cabinet's position? The first are the arrests in Coots, Alberta, which absolutely are threats of serious violence, even under the CSIS Act definition, but those were resolved prior to the invocation of the Act. Then we had threats of violence and death against law enforcement and elected officials, but there is no reference to any particularized threat. Often when pressed, they referred to rhetoric, online rhetoric and uh, threats on the streets. And then the atmosphere of intimidation, harassment and lawlessness. With respect to serious violence against property, the government's legal position is even more tenuous. Their submission, again, a quote, is the concept of serious violence to property should not be restricted to physical damage. Violence must be interpreted in the context in which it is used. Here, the context includes the purpose of the EA being to protect the safety and security of Canadians. Again, while the overall purpose of the EA is unquestionably protection of Canadians, we are looking at the threshold for invoking a particular type of emergency and as we heard from Kara, there are four different types of emergencies with four very different thresholds. It's not enough to point to the act in general and say that, well, that's what the purpose is. The whole point of using Section 2 from the CSIS Act as the threshold to unlock extreme executive powers to quell political protest was that this threshold would be high. Each section of the act has its own unique thresholds for the invocation for a reason. They are all intentionally demanding, but some, like the invocation of a public order emergency, is even more burdensome because of our history with the War Measures Act and the implications for political dissent and protest. To say the overall act has as its purpose to protect the safety of Canadians is to wholly disregard the structure of the act 
and the intended purpose behind that structure. The government submissions continue. Again, I'm sorry for the quotes, but I can't say it better than they did. Um, there is no effective difference between rendering critical infrastructure unusable through physical damage or through the blockade of that infrastructure, such that its function is completely frustrated. Rendering critical infrastructure unusable creates the same danger to the safety and security of Canadians as physical damage to that infrastructure and amounts to serious violence with respect to property. The incapacity of infrastructure harms Canadians due to the impacts on the economy that directly affect businesses and their employees and Canada's international reputation for trade and investment. Let's stop and think about what that means for a second. The argument is that blocking access to infrastructure, rendering it inoperable, is just as dangerous as physically rendering it unusable. If we accept that, we accept that blockade, blocking the Ambassador Bridge with trucks and people is just as dangerous to public safety as blowing it up. That handcuffing oneself to a fence preventing construction of a pipeline is just as dangerous as blowing that pipeline up. That piloting your personal sailboat to keep oil tankers from arriving in a port is just as dangerous as ramming your speedboat into the side of it. If this is true, if cabinet is able to invoke the Emergencies Act and end political protests because of nonviolent but illegal protests, so long as they disrupt critical infrastructure, think about what that means for political protests in this country. Moreover, the impact on Canadians of such a protest, according to this interpretation, need not even threaten public safety, merely causing economic harm and damaging Canada's international reputation is sufficient. There is again no support for this position, and I can tell you having read it, that there is no basis for this interpretation in the legislative history of the Emergencies Act. I would also suggest that the plain meaning of the phrase, serious violence against property, cannot support an interpretation that includes nonviolent economic and reputational harm, no matter the purpose of the Emergencies Act. Thank you. So I'm very fortunate to be able to say that I agree with all the foregoing analysis, which is excellent. I just want to build off of this and talk about the consequences of what occurred. Um, we can't think of something more serious with respect to the rule of law than this. And I'll say that it's really important to remember that the Emergencies Act is, for the most part, a statutory codification of what's called the Emergency Branch of the Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause of Section 91. So what that means is, if in fact there was no statutory basis under the Emergencies Act, the federal government was operating outside of its jurisdiction under the division of powers. Which means effectively that the declaration itself and all of the actions taken pursuant to the declaration were ultra-virus, um, without force and effect. And that it did so on the basis of, um, I mean, I would say that characterizing these arguments as, as frivolous um, is perhaps not going too far. Uh, at the very least, uh, tenuous, I think, is uh, an effective descriptor. Um, if this was done on this basis, there has to be accountability. Because what the Government of Canada did, just from the perspective, purely formally, of the Constitution, is that it shredded the Constitution. It, it, it expanded its own powers at the expense of the provinces, uh, at the expense of the citizenry, who have a right to constitutional government. And it did so 
clearly, I mean, there's another, another important uh, aspect of the definition is the carve-out um, in Section 2 of the CSIS Act for acts of lawful protest. Um, that it did, it, did the, it did so in those circumstances. Um, there has to be accountability for this. And I think that Asher is correct to say that ultimately that accountability is going to come from the public. Um, but I want to just talk about why in particular. Um, because there's another aspect to what occurred at the inquiry um, which really upset me. And it had to do with the way that the government frustrated the purpose of the inquiry. And it frustrated the purpose of the inquiry by saying, okay, well, it's been revealed that the, the reason why we thought we had a reasonable basis to invoke the Emergencies Act is because we um, ginned up an evolved interpretation, right? Because, you know, 1984 was just eons ago, right? We produced this evolved interpretation that includes economic harm. Um, this is what was strongly suggested. And when we wanted to get to the bottom of this, well, unfortunately, that legal opinion will never see the light of day because of the assertion of solicitor-client privilege on the part of the government of Canada. And this is something that it easily could have waived. I think that when that decision was made, um, it was kind of a, a, a time bomb ticking throughout the inquiry because as it became clear they were relying upon this legal definition, um, surely they were going to, to produce it to us so that legal scholars could say that's a frivolous argument. And by the way, just the comparator for me, uh, if you think about the war on terror period, right, eventually all of the um, um, legal opinions of the Office of Legal Counsel and the Department of Justice in the United States, that whenever the president wanted to do something, he got an opinion from these bodies that said it was legal to do whatever he wanted. Uh, and that included um, the detainment in Guantanamo Bay of so-called enemy combatants, targeted killing, uh, including targeted killing of American citizens, that ultimately when those legal opinions were released, um, they were found by most legal scholars to be, um, I would say, frivolous. Um, I remember a former Secretary of State characterizing what John Yu wrote uh, as the worst legal opinion he had ever seen. So the fact that we're not getting to see this legal opinion because of the assertion of sister-client privilege should trouble everyone. But just with respect to um, how responsibility is going to come out of judicial review or out of um, the uh, Public Order Emergency Commission, they're really limited in what they can do when there's this assertion of sister-client privilege. So just if you take a look, I recommend everyone do this, go and watch the testimony of David Lametti, and at the end of it, there's a colloquy between the commissioner and the attorney general where Lametti says, well, I don't want to get into trouble doing this. You know, you're a counselor here, so I'll be careful in how I ask these questions. But like, basically what you're saying, I'm paraphrasing, is um, you know, whatever advice happened to be given by your department to the cabinet, we just have to assume that it was adequate and that it was followed in good faith. And, and then he just confirms it with Lametti. Is, that's your position, right? Just trust us. And Lametti, just without any um, compunction, says... That's about right. Literally that. And um, so the commission and um, judicial review, they're going to be in a very difficult position based on this because effectively now they can do what judges will want to do in that position, as Asher said, and just say, well, I really can't do what you want me to do. But I would say there's two things that we should pay attention to. One is um, the special joint committee of parliament on the declaration of the emergency. I've put it to them that th it shouldn't be beyond them to hold the government responsible for not meeting its burden. 
Um, as, as a body of responsible government, which is calling the government to account, I don't think they're bound in the same way to say that, well, based on the assertion of sister-client privilege, I can't say anything at all about the government's decision to just withhold that information and frustrate um, the public inquiry. And I think that ultimately, politically, um, when we exercise the ultimate power to say whether or not we approve of the government's actions in the next election, that this should absolutely be top of mind. Because if you do not trust the government to observe the most fundamental limits on its constitutional authority, what would you trust it to do? So that puts the power very much in your hands. Thank you all very much for those uh, terrific uh, presentations. So, so now I'm going to ask a, a series of questions. I'll address each question, um, I think, in the first instance to one of you, um, but others should feel free to, uh, to, to join in um, uh, in, in the discussion as well. And I'm, I'm going to push back a, a little bit. Uh, there's uh, some broad agreement I hear, I think, on the panel. So uh, if you'll uh, allow me, I'll, I'll perhaps occupy a bit of a devil's advocate role here. Um, so my first, my first question is, uh, is for Kara. Um, it's, it has to do with the sort of adequacy of other measures um, that, that could have been used. And, and I, when I'm sort of thinking about that, one of the questions I have in mind is the distinction between sort of adequacy in theory and adequacy in, in practice, right? So yeah, it's true you know, that there are offenses that could have been charged, there are different enforcement um, techniques that could have been used. Um, but at the same time, one of the things we learned, I think, through the Rouleau Commission, um, is that there was a level of dysfunction um, in, in the police forces and, and, and in the government um, such that it seemed like this, these problems weren't resolving. Um, apart from the fact of you know, whether there were legal tools that could have been used hypothetically, they weren't being used effectively. Um, and so does that play into the analysis, the fact that you know, in practice those tools weren't, weren't, weren't effective? Thanks for the question. Yeah, so I think... Um, I mean, I, I, it certainly plays into the analysis. I, I do think that, um, and I think you're putting it kindly to say there was a certain level of dysfunction. There, there was there was a lot of dysfunction at a lot of at a lot of levels, and I, I really think that when, um, like, I didn't sort of realize this until I started looking at at all of the documents that the commission, you know, had access to and hearing from the witnesses. But it actually seemed to me like. Um, the Emergency Act was the Emergencies Act was invoked right around the time that uh, the police were finally starting to um, get, yeah get their I was going to say get their shit together I don't I don't know how else to put it really right right, <laughs> right 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 around the time when when things were finally starting to work and coalesce and when a lot of the um, what I would say political bickering about you know you, you have to go to the OPP before you can ask the RCMP for help and um, and, and also, we have to clear the, the ambassador bridge becomes a, you know, a priority because of its impacts on trade, and so we divert resources from Ottawa to, to deal with that problem. So, so I think eventually, um, you know, it, it was a capacity problem. It was, it was the reality that they did not have enough you know, human resources on the ground to deal with it. Um, but they weren't taking the position that, oh well, there's nothing we can do. They were actively trying to gather those resources. Um, so, so I do think that that is, um, you know, I, I guess I, I don't think that the, the, the failure to act as quickly as some might have liked and the failure to sort of um, move things forward as quickly as we would have liked justifies the, the use of the act. Um, 
you know, but, but I think it, it may be that there's, there's some clarity that the commission thinks should be brought to, to aspects of the act around, around that issue. Again, I mean, you know, ultimately, the, the emergency, the declaration of emergency and the orders are just pieces of paper until you have officers willing to take the steps to enforce them. And so you needed those resources one way or the other. Um, I think, you know, the, the invocation, the, the declaration and the use of the orders just really communicated very clearly, like, it, it's time to make this happen now. Um, you know, and some of the testimony um, I, I found the commissioner of the RCMP's testimony pretty um, pretty shocking in terms of how, I guess there, there just seemed to me to be a real failure to appreciate how significant this really was and what a delay in getting Ottawa the resources it needed led to. So I, I agree with that. I, I would just say that the problem I've always had with this argument is that it is essentially saying that one rule of law failure should beget another rule of law failure. That, you know, the, the rule of law is breached not just when um, state actors overreact, as I think everyone here is saying they did with the Emergencies Act, but in my view, it's also breached uh, when state actors fail to act. And uh, Professor Leonid Sirota and I made this point three years ago with the uh, blockades that were happening back in February 2020, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago now because it was right before COVID, but those blockades were happening to critical infrastructure. And one of the points we made was that it is a rule of law failure that, that police are not enforcing the law and that there is, even though there's a concept of police independence, that principle is not so broad that it would prevent the government from directing the police to generally enforce the law, to enforce injunctions, etc. And so we definitely had a rule of law failure uh, in the fact that, you know, the RCMP wasn't being directed, the Ontario government was not doing enough to, uh, to, clear, to clear the blockades, it could have brought the military, and there were so many other things that could have been done that weren't, there was massive dysfunction. That's a rule of law failure. When you bring in the Emergencies Act, you are essentially saying that we are unable as a liberal, democratic, federal state to maintain order in a lawful manner, that we have to invoke these far-reaching powers. And that, that, that is a, a damning admission of a failure of state capacity. It's, it's, it's essentially saying that we cannot actually have a rule of law state when things get tough. And, and you know, it's like freedom of expression, that freedom of expression is most important when you're faced with disagreeable speech. The rule of law is most important when you're faced with a crisis. You know, we can all get along when, when things are going well. It's when the shit hits the fan, pardon my French, that that's when the rule of law is so important. I'll just add that on the, the issue of, of capacity and authority, when it came right down to it, it was, but the tow trucks. And if I heard that <laughs> one more time, we could get through a massive pandemic and the mobilization of private and provincial and national resources to manage a pandemic without having to invoke the Emergencies Act, but we couldn't manage tow trucks without invoking the Emergencies Act. Because that was really, when it came down to it, the one thing, and there were loopholes that I've pointed out and nobody seems to care, that would have allowed them to get tow trucks under the Ontario um, Emergencies Act. But it came down to tow trucks. I mean, that's a matter of will and ingenuity. 
if it really was about the tow trucks. And so, you know, it can't be about the tow trucks. That's my only statement. You should get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> That's a, this is a really important practical point. I'm just going to go back to theory for a moment and, and stand on the division of powers, right? I mean, if the federal government can just say, oh, we don't like the way that the province is dealing with the situation. Like, we could imagine a different type of, of, of fact pattern where the, the, the province is taking what they consider to be a measured approach or a wait-and-see approach, which, by the way, I mean, there's a reason why police forces were operating in this way, right? It had to do with um, Ipperwash, it had to do with uh, the G20, all of those things, all the protocols had been developed. So now the, the federal government's impatient, and they say, well, you're not doing it the way that we would do it. We're going to call that a, 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 a constitutionally significant uh, inability, Right, such that we can say we're going to alter the, what the, the, the sacrosanct um, limits of the federal government's authority under Section 91. Um, we're, we're really playing with fire there, I think. Um, and we might see, unless there's severe accountability uh, for this, something really interesting in the future. Just also, I would say, uh, just on the, another related point, uh, not capacity, but um, just with respect to any other law, it was really interesting to see the federal government say, well, you know, we have to do this so we don't have to send in the army, right? Well, I'm sorry, I mean, it's, and people have made this point who were in Moroni's government. O OCA was them sending in the army so they didn't have to invoke the Emergencies Act. And that is the proper sequence because one alters the constitutional structure and the other does not. But the government didn't want to do that because of optics or some sort of possibility of blowback. So therefore it played fast and loose with the Constitution of Canada. Thanks everyone. The, the next um, sort of question I, I think is initially uh, going to be for uh, Asher and 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 Leah, and it's it's about you know how you approach open textured language like threats to the security of Canada, and, and it's you know it sounds like the government's approach here was um, you know this is this is a you know a legal tool of last resort. It's meant to be open ended um, for uh, threats that can't be uh, uh, dealt with um, through through other means, um, and so appropriately you know according to them this concept should be understood broadly. We should take that from the purpose of the statute, which is um, uh, to sort of address those threats, um, and, 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 from, and from its context. And, and uh, you know, they might, I think, take the position that, uh, you know, if some of the effects are the same of, say, forced occupation of property, disrupt, disrupting critical infrastructure for long periods of time, um, that that appropriately falls within uh, the purpose. Um, why, well, you know, from a sort of administrative law perspective, do we owe some level of deference to that determination? Um, and, uh, you know, why should we adopt this more narrow approach um, that uh, would, would be more restrictive? I, I, so that's a, a really important question. So at the risk of getting too deep into the weeds here, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in the Vavilov decision, that's the big admin law decision from, I think it was December 2019, uh, they, th that was a sea change in terms of how we approach admin administrative decision makers interpreting law. And, and what the Supreme Court of Canada said is you have to look at what the legislature has intended in terms of how uh, much uh, discretion it is giving to administrators to interpret the law. And the classic example of administrative discretion is with the term public interest. So whenever you see the term public interest in a statute, nobody knows what it means. And that is the legislature saying, we don't know what it means. You administrators figure it out because you're the experts. 
On the other hand, when uh, a statute says, you know, this must happen on Tuesday, well, no statute does, but let's say it said this must happen on Tuesday, well, Tuesday only means one thing all the time. And so what, what Vavilov says is that most cases are going to fall along the spectrum, and depending where it falls along the spectrum, you have to uh, either scrutinize or defer more to the administrator. And in my view, the text here is actually not so open-ended. Uh, at first blush, threats to the security of Canada may seem fairly open-ended and broad, but again, it bears the meaning that it has in Section 2 of the CSIS Act, and the government said they anchored it to Section 2C. And again, Section 2C says, serious violence to persons or property for the purpose of an ideological, religious, or political objective. I, I might have mixed up the adjectives there, but that, that's what it says. So I talk about this in my paper that really the only uh, vague term there is the word serious. So that could allow for some amount of disagreement. So I'm okay if the government said, you know what, uh, CSIS interprets serious violence uh, to persons to mean it always has to be death, and we think it can mean serious bodily harm. I would say, you know what, that's, that's reasonable. Uh, you know, but, but if, if, if they said, CSIS interprets it to mean death, we think it could mean any time someone's feelings could get hurt. Well, that's obvious, you know, <laughs> that's obviously not serious violence to, uh, to persons, and it does metaphorical violence to the text uh, when you in interpret it that way. Um, so, you know, looking at the text, I think you'd say, okay, violence, the Supreme Court has said violence uh, means uh, some kind of physical uh, interaction, violence to property, we know what property is, we know what persons are, and again, then it has to be for the objective of a uh, political, ideological, or religious, or uh, sorry, it has to be for the purpose of a religious, political, or ideological objective. So in other words, the violence cannot be an end unto itself. You have to show that the violence was motivated by some larger objective. Again, section 2C, uh, is akin to terrorism, or at the very least, some form of violent extremism. It's not just when someone's threatening violence, it's when there is that terrorist-like objective to the violence. And so, so in, in my view, while the government could plausibly say, look, um, we can take a slightly different interpretation from CSIS, it can't take an interpretation that's much different and if you look at how the government describes the facts, its own description of the facts, in my view, even its own different interpretation of serious violence to persons for the purpose of causing, uh, of furthering an ideological or political objective would not have been met. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not really even sure where they're, where they're going. Um, you know, so th th that's my view on that. Where I do think the government can take a different view is its interpretation of the facts. Because section 17 says where the governor and council believes on reasonable grounds that a public order emergency exists. So I think the government is bound by the same standard, but it can say, look, uh, CSIS heard these facts, uh, or they read the facts, and they don't think it's an emergency. Based on the same facts, we think this is an emergency based on the same standard. But there's no indication that they did that here. Because uh, David Vignon, who's the uh, director of CSIS, he was aware of all the facts, and he said CSIS wouldn't consider this an emergency, but you should. Uh, so that, that suggests not a difference in the interpretation of facts, that suggests a different standard, and that's just not the law.
So, um, so many things to say. Um, so the structure of the act is that the threat to the security of Canada is the baseline, right? So you have the threat to the security of Canada, and then it needs to be so grave to amount to a national security, um, a, a, a national emergency. So threat to the security of Canada is already the baseline. And when you look at um, the history of the Emergencies Act, there's a lot of concern from Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Canadian Bar Association, and others that the use of the CSIS Act definition was problematic because it was so vague, right? Um, that threats to the security of Canada and the four different elements under it is so vague because we're talking about an intelligence agency, right? And an intelligence agency needs to be able to collect on all kinds of things that are not yet manifest, potential threats, et cetera. It's vague, right? That to make that the threshold was it was going to be a problem when you're talking about quelling political protest. And the answer from the, the, the sponsor was like, no, no, that is then superseded by this extra burden of a national emergency. Now, let's think about what the government's argument was. Threats to the security of Canada is too narrow, right? It's being interpreted by CSIS in their very narrow mandate, right? Therefore, we needed a broader interpretation of what threats to the security of Canada means for the purpose of the Emergencies Act. That's the complete inverse of the intent behind the structure of the Act. Secondly, under the Act, it's not just that there are threats to the security of Canada. The national emergency must arise from the threats to the security of Canada. And this was something that I never saw really well articulated anywhere. It's not that there is a national emergency that creates opportunities for threats to the security of Canada, because that's what we're really talking about, right? We're talking about a protest that in certain instances, like in Coots, became an opportunity for those with extreme, extreme views, violent intentions, to co-opt the movement to advance their political interests, right? There was a threat to the security of Canada terrorist definition in that context, but it did not give rise to the economic harm we were dealing with. It did not give rise to the blockades. It arose from them, right? So again, we're flipping things on their heads. And one thing that also hasn't come up, and we're talking about accountability, and I just want to say this because I'm not sure we'll have another opportunity, is think part of the accountability, part of the structure is the act that the MPs have to vote on the act within seven days about their, thereabouts of the tabling of the Emergencies Act, right? And Asher spoke to the fact that we were all kind of waiting for eventually there would be facts that would support this idea that there was a real terrorist threat involved. There was a deep terrorist underbelly of the Freedom Convoy, right? And we were going to get those facts eventually. Even when pressed, Minister Blair, someone actually, I think on the current, put my concerns to him, and his response was, Miss West doesn't have all the facts. Like, that was their position. Right? And MPs were asked to vote on, on our current understanding or on the, the plain reading of the act and told to trust us. And uh, there was the illusion that there would be more facts that would come out. The official explainer. Yeah, the official explanation, right? That never happened. 
It was only after the fact that it wasn't facts that we couldn't possibly tell you because of the national security threat. It was because we took this novel legal interpretation. If I was a member of the Liberal Caucus, I would be pissed, right? Because they were asked to vote on something, promised that they would be given more facts, and then they, like everyone else, found out that the invocation was based on a novel legal interpretation. Can I ask a, a quick uh, admin law follow-up before we uh, get to uh, Kara and Ryan? Um, just you know, thinking through through um, some of what you just said, it, it occurred to me that, that I might ask whether the governor and council satisfied its obligation under Vavilov to give reasons for its determination. Do you think there's a, a potential issue there? Um, well, I mean, that's a really good question. There's definitely reasons. <laughs> Uh, are they sufficient reasons? I'm, I'm not sure. I also, I think that issue is probably moot by now because if they are insufficient, I don't know what the remedy no, no. for that would be. But I, you know, I, I really echo what Leah was saying. I go back to February and, uh, you know, I'm, I, as Malcolm said, I'm uh, president of Advocates for the Rule of Law and I think five of us on behalf of ARL signed a letter to Parliament, which uh, Scott Reed, who's here, MP Scott Reed, read in the House, and it was also read in the Senate. And that letter was sort of the, um, you know, the Jerry Maguire moment of help me help you. You know, like we, we were saying, you know, please, like if you have facts, like we are not, like, uh, unlike, uh, uh, unlike Canadian Civil Liberties Association, unlike CCF, ARL's not known as being like a very, we're not anti-civil liberties, but you know, we're, we're more on the law and order side. And so we're, we said in that letter, like, if you have evidence of a, a real terrorist threat, please present it, or at least say you have it, bring in key members of the opposition, you know, like there are ways to do this and, and we will support it if, there's some air of reality to this. And so we're all waiting with bated breath for this, for this evidence to emerge. And then I remember even when the commission started, uh, and you know, a, a lot of people were saying, let's wait and hear the evidence, let's wait and hear the evidence, because these facts are gonna come out, and we're sitting there and we're waiting, and it's this, you know, help me, help you moment. And then Jody Thomas says, well, we're not bound by the CSIS Act. And, and it was just like that, you know, I just remember hearing that and saying, how can you even say that? After you publish the proclamation and the explanation, which expressly refers to the CSIS Act and says, this is what we anchor our, our decision to, and now all of a sudden to say that we're, we're not bound to it. It, it, was just, it just blew my mind. Ryan or, or Leah? Just briefly, um, I mean, they filed um, the Section 58 uh, explanation in Parliament, right? And you looked at that, it was clear it was 2C. Uh, what we were waiting for, I mean, just particularly at the inquiry, um, was who were these terrorist groups taking advantage of? And I agree with, um, with uh, Leah that that wouldn't be sufficient under the, the, a plausible reading of the CSIS Act, but nevertheless, or of the Emergencies Act as well. But then, um, like, who, where are these terrorists? Right? Does anyone remember all the talk about dialogon? I'm not even sure how that's pronounced, Egg right? On. And then we, um, we got Pat Morris. That was, a, to me, a very pivotal moment in the inquiry when the head of the Provincial Operations Intelligence Bureau talked about this, and he said, oh, no, like, essentially just disabused all of that. And when they kept referring to, and the government of Canada kept coming back to the notion that there were these extremists 
Were they violent extremists? Were they ideologically motivated violent extremists? No, but they were extremists. And what they were talking about, 95% of the time, was a group called Farfada. Now, um, the real bait and switch there. Now, Farfada, I mean, I'll defer to Francophones here, but I always translate that as the leprechauns, right? The, the leprechauns. That was, and it was Steve Charlon and the leprechauns. Right? And if you do the Rachel Gilmore three degrees of, um, of connection, you can, prob- you can probably get him to somebody who said something really nasty about immigration or something like this. Right? We're not talking about people who built pipe bombs. Um, and the fact that that had been front run in the official explanation put to Parliament when, and by the way, the Senate didn't really um, uh, go along with this. They kept asking the government for the intelligence that would have allowed, it would have been to help help you helping them, and the government refused to senators in camera, right? So then um, the notion that this was um, going to be something that we could see, it just proved to be so incredibly disappointing, and then leading into Jody Thomas telling us that, well, you know, we had this evolved interpretation, and then the, um, and then at that time, gesturing towards the fact that the lawyers would explain it, does people remember that? And then you hear from the attorney general that they were invoking solicitor client privilege and not waiving it. Add one other thing that disappointed me in terms of the explanation of the idea of giving reasons. Um, if you all remember, back to February 14th and the um, invocation, there was no enunciation of which threat to the security of Canada they were going to invoke under, and there was no definition of which prong of national emergency. It was never enunciated which prong of national emergency until the inquiry. Even in their justifications, they gave, and I, if anybody is interested, I made a nice spreadsheet, and it's on the Intrepid Podcast website, of mapping the justification onto the legal thresholds. And they offered a smattering of facts that would um, go towards beyond the authority and capacity of a province, and also talked a lot about things that violated sovereignty, um, security, and territorial integrity. And, but they never pegged, you know, landed on one. They didn't even land on one when they asked the MPs to vote on it. They only kind of landed on one when they got to the commission, and I'm not even sure it was until their legal submissions. And so the Emergencies Act was designed to have all these checks and require an explanation and a justification for the invocation of these extraordinary powers, and there was a shortcutting of that at every opportunity, which I think we all have to question is like, if it's really necessary, right, show, put all your cards on the table, right, and, and we'll get behind it, the help you help us kind of thing. But there was, the fact that all those cards were never put on the table and were only reluctantly came out as we went along, I think really has to give us pause and, and really has to give us pause about how the structure of the act is because these checks and balances didn't work. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. This week's episode was a special encore presentation from our National Law and Freedom Conference. This year's conference was sponsored by the National Post, Miller Thompson LLP, Baker and McKenzie LLP. LexisNexis Canada, Jordan Honickman Barristers, Castles, Brock, and Blackwell LLP, and the McDonald Laurier Institute. 
Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now. Thank you.